This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. TL Talk Radio, Season 6, Episode 5. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 5 of TL Talk Radio. I'm Lynn Funy-Hatton. And I'm Randy Ziganfus. Today, we're speaking with Larry Altman. Today, we're speaking with Larry about a recent publication pertaining to proposed changes in Title IX regulations. Welcome back to the show, Larry. Glad to have you again today. Thank you. It's an honor to be, as always, present with you two wonderful people and with your guest. Excellent. So let's get the conversation started with a personal story about how you got interested or connected to Title IX and the regulation. It goes back to my days when I was in the Kansas City, Missouri Public School District. Um, at that, uh, When I was hired there in 2011, I was uh, the official title was Lead Compliance Officer for Special Education and Section 504. Uh, in February of 14 of 2000 or in April of 2014, I should say, uh, President Obama had a press conference uh, because he was very upset with how various universities have, he had received a report from the Office of Civil Rights that universities around the country had been ignoring rapes on campuses. And uh, this was after the his, his Office of Civil Rights had already published something in 2011 about this, but he ordered them to publish another document much longer saying, putting specific demands again upon the shoulders of students, of schools, I should say, on April 29th of 14. When that was received, uh, I informed the head lawyer of our school district, who then informed the superintendent, that I was going to do a summary of that because I felt it was extremely important. And at that, and about a day later, the head attorney and the superintendent congratulated me because I'd just been appointed Title IX coordinator for the district. <laughs> Congratulations. Uh, so I, I got started. We wrote, uh, we, wrote we, we created policy protocols and procedures uh, for investigation and compliance with that uh, document. And uh, then I was in charge of all Title IX investigations from that point forward. Um, and so that's how I got connected. And we developed uh, uh, policy protocols and procedures that all reports of, of any thought of a sexual harassment nature got to my desk. We then, I then created a uh, uh, procedural format of how to first review the document and then made a determination if there was going to be a full investigation or not. Uh, if we then conducted the investigation, I was in charge of that, and ultimately I would have to determine whether or not uh, there was a violation of those requirements that President Obama's administration published. While that was going on, somehow the, the Department of Education heard about our work. Uh, they then contacted uh, me, uh, one of the attorneys from the Department of Education, uh, I gave them additional information about what we were doing. And by the end of 2014, our, our school district was considered a stakeholder for the Department of Education 
meaning that when there was an issue in the Midwest of how to do this, they were told to contact me. And I, we were given a direct, I was given a direct phone number to one of the attorneys at DOE. Uh, and so we continued our work until I retired at the end of 2015. So uh, Larry's pretty much an expert in this area of Title IX. So our listeners can know that um, what you're hearing today uh, is going to be good information that can guide your work around this Title IX. So let's say we've got a couple listeners out there, probably more than a couple listeners out there, that sort of ended up in the same place that you ended up, where you've been labeled the Title IX coordinator. Give us a, an overview. Of what does Title IX regulate, and, and what are the important pieces about it that a school leader should care about? Title IX it was, is the federal law that, that, according to the United States Supreme Court, says that students are, are to be free from what is defined as sexual harassment or sexual violence in any school, university that receives federal funding. Since almost every public school, K through 12, receives federal funding, they must comply with the requirements of Title IX. In addition, even what we call private colleges or universities, and I went to two of them, because they are the recipients of federal funding through grants, they are also mandated to, to uh, comply with the requirements of Section Title IX. Um, from a legal point of view, uh, what occurred is the law was passed. It was originally thought when it was, or it was proposed to be originally was nothing more than uh, the occurrence was is that if you were in a male sports program, uh, you were getting all sorts of school funding. If you were a woman sports person, you got your, your school gave you zero. And so the original thought was we had to balance this. That's how it started. Then a case worked its way up to the United States Supreme Court in the mid-80s, the question being, what about if a peer-on-peer -peer sexual harassment incident takes place? Does Title IX cover that situation? And the Supreme Court says, yes, it does, because it denies it could den a sexual harassment, sexual violence situation could deny a student of equal access to the educational or academic environment or the sports environment. And so from there, the process got expanded. And so today, what schools, every school has to be aware of, if you're getting a federal dollar, is that you can no longer ignore uh, when a student presents a complaint that, that he or she, and it covers both sides, covers everybody, uh, has been the victim of some sort of sexual harassment or sexual violence. There has to be a process to first receive the allegations and then a process to assess it, investigate it, and act upon it if it's found to be truthful. So let's talk about the definition of sexual harassment and how that has evolved. Well, under the under the 2014 uh, requirements, it didn't take much. Uh, and in April 29 of 14, the, the name of it is, if you were looking to find out what it is, and it, it's called the it's called its questions and answers on Title VII and sexual violence from the Office of Civil Rights, April 29, 2014. Now, one thing I want to mention right now, that document has been withdrawn. It is no longer in existence as far as the federal government is concerned. However, at that stage, when we were get, when I got into it at that stage, uh, the definition was sexual, uh, of sexual harassment or violence was uh, an act perpetrated against the person's will or a person is unable to give consent because of the person's age intellectual disability or due to the age or use, use of drugs or alcohol. It was a very broad definition. Basically said, if I say no, that's good enough for an investigation to begin. That's no longer the definition. The definition today is, is that the school must have actual knowledge 
of the of the uh, allegations, and that it must be to reach the lift to reach the level of what they call sexual uh, uh, harassment or violence. It must be unwelcome. It has to be unwelcome conduct, but on the basis of sex. But it has to be so severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive that it effectively denies a person equal access to the school's education program or activity. That's a very narrow definition in compared to what existed in 14. The reason that is now, or at least given by the Department of Education and the Office of Rights for that definition, is that is the exact definition that the United States Supreme Court gave it uh, in what we call the Davis versus Monroe Supreme Court case. That's exactly what it said. And the, the, the Department of Education's viewpoint was that the prior definition went beyond what the Supreme Court says was in violation. Mm -hmm. And this administration wanted to come back and say, we're going to return to what the Supreme Court exactly said. So that's the definition you follow today. And so clarify for us, what moment in time did that definition switch? The official change was September 23rd of 2017. What occurred was on that date, uh, the Department of Education published a, a, a document saying that we are withdrawing the 2011 and 2014 sexual Title IX directives from the Obama administration. Uh, at that stage in 17, we were told that we would have new regulations within a year that would give us guidelines specifically in accordance with what this administration believes should be under the control of Title IX. Um, we don't have that yet, by the way. What we have is proposed regulations that still are not adopted. So we are somewhat in limbo right now. We don't really have official Department of Education guidelines or regulations regarding Title IX. So as school leaders, what should we do in terms of updating our grievance procedures based on this new definition and how well, they, it has changed? That's a good question. In the September 17 publication, they did give some suggestions, the Department of Education, and including was the change of definitions. But a part of what they wanted in there was a complaint that they claimed, and, and I can confirm that this was a complaint, was that, pri that under the... Oh, uh, the prior rules, one person could, as I, such as myself, I was the Title IX coordinator. I was the investigator if I, I had help, but I was also the final determiner of whether or not there was a violation. Now, in our school, that could be appealed, mm -hmm. but it wasn't a mandatory appeal process. The complaint and the, one of the primary changes that schools have to make today is that absolutely has been re revoked, even under the suggested principle. Now they want it broken into there's an investigator. There's a Title IX coordinator, and then there's a decision maker. All three must be different. And they believe their thought was if you put this in the hands of three different people, the outcomes will be more fair to both sides. And so if I, when I talk to schools today, uh, I urge them to, to split it into the three parts, is that you have a Title IX coordinator that supervises everything, receives the complaints, but that first, then there is, it is assigned to an independent investigator who is not the Title IX coordinator, who then takes his or her findings and publishes them, sends them to the two complaining part to the complaining party and the and purported perpetrator, along with a decision maker or makers, who then, after reviewing the investigation materials, determines whether or not a was was there in fact a violation of the Title IX rules of that school, mm -hmm. and then reaches a decision on that basis. 
So we really need to update our Title IX guidelines for uh, grievance procedures. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think that any school that remains, even my prior school, what I've urged them when they talk to me, is that the work as far as the sections that discussed how we conduct investigations needs to be modified. And I have, in fact, had that situation at a couple of universities where I've stepped in and they said, here's how we're going to break it apart. Um, you've got to have uh, these three components. Um, and, and, and what we were seeing across the country, and I, and I know there was a movement in the state of Missouri, is that the concern was that people were misreading, I think, what was required of them in 2014 and 2011. They believed that the moment an, a, a complaint was filed that the perpetrator was automatically guilty. And so they didn't do any investigating. They just said, guilty, we're done here. <laughs> well, it never said that. Um, it said fair and impartial. But sadly, there are some people that try to short stuff, short, take shortcuts. And I guess there were enough administrators around the country and, or principals or whoever it might have been that believed, well, if we want to keep the Office of Civil Rights off our back, let's just, if we get a complaint, just find the person that he did it or she did it. What's the complaint now? Well, the complaint now is sometimes we were denying that perpetrator uh, due process. Sometimes it resulted in a college or university, a total expulsion from the school. Mm -hmm. The education was gone. And so there were enough complaints uh, that they decided it would be best to change that procedural insertion of review and analysis. So in school districts, um, practice could be anyone could take the complaint. So it could be a building principal who, who takes a complaint from a teacher or from a student. It could be a central office administrator. So you have that first person. That well, that's not true anymore now. That's one of the changes they made. Now you can't just say it used to be under the Obama rules that if any adult in the building was told that the school had notice that there was a complaint. Now, if the principal receives something, that principal has to report to the Title IX coordinator or somebody who has the authority to take action. Mm -hmm. That is when the notice occurs. So we've what the complaint against the new regulations is, it now becomes more difficult to get the people with the need to know, to know it. Mm -hmm. Who are those people? And so, uh, as I said, and we had this, I had this discussion at an Office of Civil Rights presentation to the Missouri Bar late 2014, is that there was no doubt at that time that if a child K through 12 went to the cafeteria worker with a complaint, the school was on notice. If the cafeteria worker forgot to tell me as the Title IX coordinator, we were in trouble. So what we had to do was create a procedure, a mandatory reporting procedure, what if anybody got even an inkling that a child was complaining about something, it had to get to my desk as the Title IX coordinator. Otherwise, we were in trouble. Mm -hmm. Today, that won't work. There is a limited number of people. The principal of the building might work because he or she has control over the building and the students there, but not the teachers anymore, not the cafeteria worker, right. uh, not a part-time person. So they have changed who gets to know who must be told that there is a complaint against someone. That's another change schools are going to have to make. The Obama administration believed that at a K through 12 level, that it's, it sometimes could be actually even the person who cleans up the building is who a child has the most confidence mm -hmm. in. And so what the Obama administration wanted to make sure is that schools, quote, didn't have the excuse of not knowing. So they, it, it, we've had this, I had this discussion with the Office of Civil Rights at that presentation. 
And so that required everybody in the building to be, yes, a mandatory reporter to whom? To, to the Title IX coordinator. Mm -hmm. What we did at Kansas City Public Schools is I didn't want it to go through a third party anymore. So we, we, there was a software program created that was on the desktop on every person's desk, including the janitorial staff, whoever had a computer in that building that had a Title IX icon. All they had to do was toggle on that and send me a notice. There was a one-page form. I heard student A say this about student B today. Thank you very much. Hit send. It hit my desk. I had a separate email address for that report. Now the ball game has started. What we did is we avoided or we tried to curtail any missed reports. And we I, and that may have been why the Department of Education, when, that, when we explained that to them, as did the Office of Civil Rights person in charge in the Kansas City, Missouri area, said, if you want to know how to have this done, talk to Kansas City Public Schools. They've got to figure it out. Mm -hmm. Now, did we overboard it? Maybe. But I didn't want the school. I didn't. First of all, the child safety was the most important thing in the world. I didn't want to miss, take the chance of missing. The reason I didn't have, we, we decided, and this was with the approval of the superintendent, we didn't want to have the report to have to go through the building principal and then come to me because how do I know, I'm not saying it would, is that the principal said, I'm not going to take the time to do that. Why are you bothering me with that? By coming to me directly, the answer was you never bothered me. Mm -hmm. That's what I was here for. And if we caught wind, if the superintendent found out that a staff person was reprimanded for coming to me with, with materials, that building person had a problem on their sure, hands. That Let's put it to you that way. Mm -hmm. That ended that problem. We, we, we never had that because he made that very clear that if Larry is getting a report, don't you dare chew out the staff person. Mm -hmm. So, but under these new rules, uh, and you've hit upon it, this is, this, the complaint is it makes it more difficult to tell somebody, how does a child who's five, who's in third grade know? How do the parents know? That's certainly on the other side. I've got that. Um, but the reality of it is that's what we have now, sort of, because <laughs> we don't have right now. <laughs> so let's talk about um, these are important roles that these three critical pieces or people play um, as these grievance procedures have changed. Let's talk about the importance of training for the investigators and decision makers. If that is in the new proposed regulations, that is mandatory. And I agree with that. Uh Everybody has to understand what their job is and what their duties and obligations are. And so what the new proposed regulations have mandated is periodic training of all of those categories you just discussed so that an investigator knows who to talk to, what notes to take, what is critical, what is not. The Title IX coordinators has to understand that their duties aren't just to sit there and watch or, or send out and assign an investigator. What we now know about Title IX and this is from cases around the country, is that when a student has been victimized by something of this nature or bullying or anything, there's trauma involved. Uh, and once that, so since we have a, a traumatic event, the training of that Title IX quarter, in my opinion, would say, okay, besides the Title IX stuff, what else do I have to supervise? Well, I have to make sure that the people who are in charge of special, special education or Section 504 are made aware that there's a potential for a child developing a disability that uh, needs to be accounted for because of a traumatic event and that these are the steps to follow as we monitor that child through the system. If the child is already classified, there's enough case law out there that says a traumatic event can make that condition worse, increase the need for services and or accommodations, 
or convert a 504 child to an IDEA child. And again, it requires collecting data and supervising. The Title IX quarter needs to know to do all of those things and how to monitor those things. And that's not easy. And so that's where that Title IX quarter needs training. The hearing people need to understand what, for example, the standard of evidence the school is going to use to determine whether or not the allegations are factual. And then have to understand that if it is, what they have to do to redress it. So this is just saying training in itself, that's great and wonderful. Uh, I sort of know what to do, but it would help if somebody from the federal government would tell everybody this is what we expect. <laughs> so fascinating, especially how it's all evolving. And like you said, we don't even necessarily have this, the final guidelines yet. We're operating under under draft guidelines, I guess that's what they call them. We don't know what they call them. I've actually talked to my good friends of the Office of Civil Rights in the Kansas. I said, what are you guys, what are you folks doing? And he said, and I love this, is your guess is as good as mine. Mm. We don't really have any guidance right now. Wow. So I said, what do you think we got to be doing? And they said, something more than what was required under the Obama administration. That's the answer I was given. Mm. And look at all the federal cases out there and make sure you meet their standards. Okay, I got it. I've got it. But I'm a lawyer. I'm trained to get it. Yeah, interesting. Well, this has been a, an interesting conversation. And uh, as you know, I think from our uh, maybe our recent conversations and previous episodes, we've got now, now lightning response questions for you. So we're looking for some quick answers for our listeners, providing them with a little bit more resources around this topic. So who, okay. is, who is one expert our listeners should connect with to learn more about Title IX? I hate to pat myself on the back, but it may be me. And, and the reason I say that is because the Missouri Bar is having me do a hour, hour and a half podcast presentation on this topic in three or four weeks. So out of thousands of lawyers in the state of Missouri, they decided I was the guy. Um, there's others out there. And as I said, I hate to pat myself on the back, but if the Missouri bar thought I was qualified, maybe that's it. Well, it certainly sounds from this podcast like that's a good choice. How about uh, if you were recommending one book to our listeners, what would it be? Well, again, it's a book I published several years ago. It's somewhat outdated, but I like it talks about those policies of how you investigate, and it's worth reading. Again, I'm not trying to tout the book. I am in some way. It's called From Bullying to Sexual Violence. Now, there are chapters in there certainly about the summary of the 14, the 2014 regulations, what it said is are not applicable. But there are sections in that book that talk how to conduct an investigation and what to look for. That doesn't change. And uh, I think we actually did an episode on that. Uh, yes, we did. Season five, episode seven. So we'll be sure to link that as well in the show notes. And how about, uh, how do you stay on top of all this? How do you keep your learning uh, up to speed on all these changes and somewhat confusing scenarios and uh, this landscape here that we're dealing with? There is an outstanding organization called Special Education Connection published by LRP Publications. That is my, every morning they send me, they send those who subscribe. We get daily updates of every federal thing around the country. And when I have to do research on cases, when I'm looking at the latest in regulations or what a judge says in Hawaii, that organization is what I know will give me that latest, most current tool, case, regulation, notice, and I can't do without. So that would be it's it's that would be who I would it's who I've subscribed to for 10, 12 years. 
And it is what lets me have my research tool. Right. Now, is that something that's purely focused on uh, for lawyers, for like yourself, or or would special ed directors, um, people who are Title IX coordinators, would would that be beneficial for uh, an educator to subscribe to? The answer is yes, because what the editors do when they publish something, there are there's a brief explanation of what the case or the regulations mean. They also will publish interviews with psychologists when it comes to mental health, uh, with uh, Title IX coordinators about what schools should do, of how they should prepare themselves and their staff for upcoming events. Uh, for example, during the summertime, there was a very good article written of how school administrators need to get ready for the opening of the Section 504 review cycle as they go into their schools. For administrators, for 504, the top person who does 504 in a building, that is extremely valuable to read because it gives you a checklist. Mm -hmm. Cover these topics. Here are our suggestions. And so, yes, there are the law cases. And I, I understand that's for the lawyers that I can read about, but it's their summary and their interviews that if, uh, if I were to at, tell what I've done is downloaded it with their permission and said, look at what these checklists tell you to do, Mr. or Ms. Administrator, Mr. or Ms. Principal, this is your checklist. Follow it. There's a reason these people are telling you to do these things. Mm -hmm. It's because it keeps your school safe, makes your students a better environment for educational purposes, but the byproduct is compliance. Good stuff. So thanks for sharing all those resources with us, Larry. Yeah, we'll definitely check that out, especially the 504 section. So we'll link those resources in the show notes. And last question for Larry, tell us, what are you working on next? Uh, beyond working with the bar to share this information on a larger scale across the state? I'm getting ready to write a second book. Ooh. Uh, the book, uh, the first book is was, was probably more directed at administrators. Book two is going to be really written, expanded so that parents have a little better understanding what they need to be doing to suggest to their schools. So we're in the beginning process of that. It will certainly talk about Title IX, but we're also going to talk about mental health issues. Uh, we're going to talk about bullying. And uh, it's just going to be more expansive and trying to get the parents to understand what they need to do to help their children and perhaps to uh, gig, you know, sort of dig at their administrators saying, hey, we really need to have this done. So that's in the works. Excellent. We'll look forward to seeing that. So all of those items that Larry shared with us are linked in the show notes as well as the previous podcasts. In each episode, we leave you with a question to think about with the idea of provoking reflection and conversation. How will you ensure you are prepared to handle Title IX concerns? If you've enjoyed this episode, would like to comment or check out the resources shared today, visit the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for Season 6, Episode 5. That's all for this episode. We'll be back next week with another conversation featuring an innovative thought leader. Thanks again, Larry. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye, Larry. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments, 
You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.